Please turn with me now to our New Testament reading, our sermon text, which is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made, you, how, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is not spoken in vain. We know that these words... Lord Jesus Christ did not speak them in vain, unnecessarily, did not speak them to no profit to your people, but Lord, he spoke as the compassionate, loving Savior of the world to someone with a deadly illness. And Lord, these words of warning, how we pray that these things would sink deeply into our hearts and that none would escape the force of these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is our section from verses 13 to 21 in Luke chapter 12. Do you all know this stern warning that begins the chapter? We didn't read it as I knew I was going to read it here. It said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is... Hypocrisy. He begins with this great warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
And then Jesus adds to that many other words having to do with the fear of God rather than the fear of man. And then strangely, after all of these things have been said, then we have this man popping up as if he had not heard a single word of this, saying, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. All that teaching had just washed over him. It meant nothing to him. And God's ministers over the years have taken comfort from that, knowing that this was the living son of, the, the son of God in the flesh himself speaking those things. And that not everyone in the audience, not everyone in the congregation on that day was really listening to those things. And so it will be today. Of course, I pray that you would be among those who are listening to these words. But after all this, we have this strange incident in verse 13. And one of the crowds said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to defy the inheritance with me. It didn't even slow him down in his thinking. It hadn't, it hadn't caught up with him. And Jesus responds to the man in this way, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? It's a good question. Who did make Jesus a judge? And the answer is no man made him a judge, but that's not because he was not a judge. God the Father made him the judge. We know from John chapter 5 that the Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So that Jesus is the, the final judge and the final arbitrator over all. He was made that to be by the Father. He was that, of course, as the eternal Son of God. But on another level, the question reminds us of the nature of Christ's kingdom in the world then and in the world right now. We know that in response to Pilate, who asked him, are you a king? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. He means that in the future it will be. He most certainly will be the judge in all matters and a great king and judge of all things. But right now, that's not the nature of his kingdom. But he doesn't stop with that. He goes on, not only was a man mistaken, coming to Jesus, imagining that he was going to have these secular matters taken care of by Jesus right then, not only was he mistaken there, he had far larger problems than that. So Jesus doesn't dwell on that. He moves quickly on to the larger problem in this man's heart. He says in verse 15, and he said to him, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Jesus warns them of covetousness. And by the way, that helps us to understand the nature of of what's going on here. You know, was this man coming as one who had been really wronged and that some, there was an inheritance law and that his brother wasn't listening to his inheritance law and he was coming for justice? Well, Jesus would not then accuse him or, or warn him about covetousness. Merely coming for justice, that's not the same thing. So clearly that's not the issue. You know that the Old Testament inheritance law greatly favored the the firstborn son and that the others received a lesser portion. And he was asking for an equal portion, I think, is what's, what's here. He's come to this great rabbi, far greater, of course, than he realized. And, you know, the funny thing is that he thinks this is perfectly acceptable. 
And in this whole, this society that is, identifies itself with adherence to the Old Testament law, in the sight of all these Pharisees and scribes and law experts, he walks right up and says, tell my brother to share the inheritance. He wasn't aware of his sin of covetousness. He wasn't aware of the danger either. He, I, I think he, what comes to mind is that he was like a, a, a little child playing with some deadly weapon he'd found somewhere. And he's a child. He doesn't realize that other people can see this great danger. He doesn't realize the danger to himself. And Jesus is as a compassionate adult or more like a father and, and wants to take that dangerous thing out of his hand before he hurts him. And so he tells him this parable. And that parable, as you know, is no light story. It might as well have been a description of some lethal poison or some dread disease because the outcome is sudden, the outcome is permanent, and it is total and eternal death. The thing that he was toying with at that moment, the thing that he was not even noticing, was going to kill him. You know, it's like when they found out about cigarettes cause lung cancer. They might seem to be trivial, harmless. And you know, up until not so long ago, they even had that sort of advertising, even sort of cartoon type advertising. And for that reason, the government had to step in and to say, no, you're going to put a plain big label that says smoking kills because people are likely to misinterpret this. It doesn't look like a gun. It doesn't look like a knife, but it is deadly. Don't play with it. Smoking kills. Well, the word of God is telling us that covetousness kills. You might not think so. You might not notice it. It's not a big deal. But there's a label that Jesus himself has put on it and it says covetousness kills. That's the title of our sermon this morning. Jesus, now when we say this, Jesus in his compassion has written that label for us because he wants to save you. So again, the title is Covetousness Kills. There's three points. The warning, the parable, and the principle. The warning, the parable, and the principle. So the warning. This going in order of the text in verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And notice that double warning there. Take heed... Listen up, it's actually literally look, and beware, be on your guard. Jesus doesn't say these things about everything. This is a very rare construction that he's reserved for this sort of thing. That must be something that easily escapes notice, something that creeps up unaware, something that tends to catch people off guard. That's why we must be on guard against it. It's not something that is acknowledged and known and he knows and everyone else knows the true dangers of. It is something that will easily escape notice. You've got to be on your guard against it. And the reason Jesus gives why we should be careful to stay away from covetousness is very simple. Our life does not consist in the things that we have in this world. Because life, and it's all important how we define it, right? Life, true life, is defined on other terms. As this parable is going to remind us, it's because our life is bound up in our soul. That's the thing. The thing that this man keeps forgetting or misidentifies, in fact, is 
his soul and what's going to happen to his soul. That because his soul is the everlasting part and the, the rules and the principles that govern how well our bodily existence is maintained and cared for simply do not apply to our eternal spiritual life of the soul. They don't apply. That's the important thing. And so seeking after these things and having all these things which support and nurture and maintain and increase our, our, our material life, or so it seems for a while, they do nothing for us. They lead us no closer to eternal life at all. Worse than that, worse than that, as we shall see, coveting and seeking after these things is actually a detriment to the life of the soul. It's not just merely a distraction. It doesn't just it doesn't lead you any closer. It's it's actually detrimental. It brings you in the other direction. Spending yourself on these concerns, spending yourself on these pursuits and these these priorities, it will bring you in the other direction. It will be the death of you. And that's what is said. You remember in Luke chapter nine, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is destroyed or lost? And you see what, what he doesn't say there clearly, he's saying here now. And uh, what, is he, what are we talking about when we say he's desiring to save his life, will lose it? Well, clearly, these are two different definitions of life. There is life in this world, and there are things you can do either to save or to lose it. And then there's, there's your eternal life. And likewise, there are things you can do to save or to lose that life. And Jesus is saying that these are mutually exclusive pursuits. You can pursue life to the fullest in this world, material wealth. You can pursue pleasure, the pleasures of sin in this world. But Jesus is reminding us but that all of your pursuits and your priorities and your seeking after these things actually are going to lead you to hell. Jesus gives us this warning that covetousness is hazardous. It used to say in America, it's hazardous to your health, smoking. It used to say that. Well, covetousness is hazardous to your spiritual health. But to put it a little bit more plainly, it's going to kill you. Covetousness kills. Well, that's the principle Secondly, he gives a parable to illustrate it. And the parable is this. It's well known. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? He said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Now, brothers and sisters, we have to see that by human standards, by worldly standards, this man was wise. He was no fool. He would be held up to us as an example of of business acumen. He had done well. He would come in, wouldn't he, to our, our schools and give a lecture as to how to be as successful as him. But God calls him a fool. On what basis? Well, the basis, you see, is the outcome. 
That's the definition of real wisdom, is where does this lead you to? That's what it says in Matthew eleven nineteen. Wisdom is justified by her children. That's the thing that we ought to know. It's justified by our children. Sometimes there are actions that people take right now that don't seem to make sense to someone else. But then later, the results come, and people say, okay, well, that, that, uh, I understand now. And, and wisdom is justified by the children. The question is, where is that timeline going to stop? Well, the world obviously has it going on while you still are alive. And, and they, they, they have a complete blank when it comes to death and to the things of eternity. Well, let's not even think about that. We'll, just, we'll not even put that into the equation. But right now, what is doing something is, for right now, that's, that's wise. But God's wisdom says, no, 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 no. The outcomes are eternal. The only outcomes that matter are eternal. And what happens in the next life? This man was a fool. Well, again, as by human standards, a man was wise. By human standards, the man was rich. Indeed, I think this is the dream of, of most people, to be independently wealthy, to have a store of money or goods that will enable you to live well without working in your retirement years. Isn't that a great idea? Isn't that the dream and the desire of, of most people in this world? And you see his thought, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. It's funny, you know, God created us to work. It's uh, great to have prayed for our brother Clifford when he's 80, has gone back to a full-time job ministering the gospel. Reminder that we're created to work. There's not a, uh, we can obviously change one job and go to another And some of us, our bodies are so broken, there's absolutely nothing that we can do in the traditional sense that would be paid. But there's still work that we do in the house and and for our neighbors and our church and all the rest of it. We all have something to do. But this this man's thought is not at all on that. His ambition is not to have work that is suitable to his situation, which is a good one. His work, his ambition is not to work at all. It's to take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, there's a whole genre of television shows going back to my childhood in the 80s that has to do with lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know. That was predating reality TV. And if you can summarize it, it's take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the lifestyle that people want. That's, and he was, in the eyes of this world, rich. He was a success story. He not only was, was wise, he was wealthy, he was a success. But the motivation clearly had something to do with covetousness because that's what the parable is there to illustrate. He must have something com- in common with the man who spoke to him about the inheritance. I don't know if the man would have seen that or not. The man maybe thought of himself as someone of very modest means, who simply wanted a, uh, he, he knew that there, some brothers were generous enough perhaps to give a, a larger share of the inheritance than what was legally required. And he thought to himself that he'd have a decent start in life or, or whatever by having a larger inheritance. He probably did not himself see the comparison with this one who had completely sold himself out to, to taking his ease and eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus is always pointing us to the outcomes, Right? Where does this seed, where does this root go to? There are things in my garden which began very small, so unnoticeable 
It wasn't worth anyone's uh, while to come pluck it up. But they grow and they grow and they grow. And now they're enormous troubles for us. Well, much more so is it spiritually. Because this little root of covetousness, where is it going to lead? It's going to lead him away from God. That's the net effect of all these things. You see, this man... And all of his thinking, the man in the parable had made himself his own provider. Do you know that God has said he's going to be our provider? It's true. Abraham said, my God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. You remember that statement of faith? There's a wonderful chapter, Genesis 22. He's, supposed to, he's been told to sacrifice his own son. He says, my God will provide. And then at the end of all this, he says, Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That is the voice of faith. That is, by the way, the voice of someone who is actually quite wealthy in the things of this world. But his heart, his mindset was that the Lord will provide for him. Well... In pragmatic terms, we know that the commandments of God are sometimes contrary to our material well-being in this world. Abraham sacrificing his son was not particularly a good idea in that, in that sense. Nor, nor was it with regard to those midwives in Exodus. You remember them? And so the midwives feared God. That you remember they, they, they were going to, they had to disobey the commandment of Pharaoh. And you would think that that would lead completely to their destruction. But instead it was said, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So God provides for his people in ways that don't have, don't follow those ordinary rules sometimes. And what I want us to see in all this parable is that we need to be very clear who our provider is and how these things work, where it's leading Well, thirdly, and briefly, there's the principle. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Because he was certainly laying up treasure. He was doing that. The problem is it was was towards himself rather than towards God. He had an open heart. Don't think of him as a miser. He had a, a huge open heart and open hands toward himself. Right? Toward himself. Not towards God. He didn't even mention God. At no point do we hear any mention of him. He does not figure it all into his plans. That does not come in at all. It's not a a situation where he says, this is an opportunity to serve God. This is an opportunity to glorify God. This is an opportunity to help God's people. None of it at all. And it's just like what is said in Psalm 10. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. That is the definition. Again, If you're here this morning and God does not figure in your thoughts that a week passes and you don't think of God, this is who you are. This, you are the wicked. That is the way God defines you. Those who God does not figure in your thoughts, the wicked. Now, if that's true and not rich towards God, the implication is that somehow this being rich towards God will bring salvation. Now, that's not a new gospel. That's just a way of speaking. That's the way we describe the attitude to somebody who is going to get salvation. It's speaking of, well, let's just, let's make a comparison, okay? How is he rich towards material things? How is he rich towards himself? Well, he seeks them. 
That, that's, that's his ambition. And when they're presented, he embraces them. He, he finds a home for them, doesn't he? He makes bigger barns for them. He finds a home for them. He doesn't turn them away. And then he makes plans to maximize them. He's not going to waste these things when he has them. He's going to maximize them, and they're going to bring him dividends in the years to come. And, of course, the, the most, perhaps the most crucial steps is that he entrusts himself to them. He puts his trust in these things. He is rich towards these material things in all these ways. Now, if that's true, then let's go on the other side. These are ways in which someone could be rich toward God. You can seek God. He invites you to seek God. He commands you to seek God. The rich fool has no interest in seeking God. You can embrace, even if you don't seek God, you can yet embrace things when they come. There are some people that never seek God. Never make some, some uh, conscious plan to seek God, but rather God comes to them. For whatever reason, the gospel is presented to them, the uh, tract is handed to them. Somebody comes witnessing. And there it is, the life-giving riches of the gospel given to you on a silver platter. And the one who is rich in relation to God embraces those things, leaps at the opportunity that's given to them. But the rich fool doesn't even notice them, ignores them, wishes that they weren't there. Well, you can make plans also to maximize those things in your life. Just like the, the, he did materially, you can make plans to make these things maximal spiritually. You can arrange your life accordingly. Uh, I, again, speak to anyone who is rich spiritually, one who you know is a Christian and is, is sanctified and blessed and all these things. And that is exactly what they do. They organize their whole life around maximizing the opportunity and the benefit of spiritual things. That's what they do. Their decision of where to, to live is not determined by ultimately by the highest salary, their most prestigious university, but where is the church that will do them the most good? Their decision of whom to marry is not based mainly on whom is the most attractive from a physical or material standpoint, not that those things are utterly unimportant, but who's most likely to be a godly leader as a husband, a teacher in spiritual things, or a helper in spiritual things as a wife. The rich fool plans his life for completely different purposes. And of course, in that final step, you can put your trust in Christ to be your portion. When you have all those things, when they've been given to you, you can, you can throw yourself and entrust yourself to them. Just like this man entrusted himself to those things. He said, this is what's going to provide for me. This is what's going to bring me happiness. This is what's going to see me safely through my life. You can do that with Jesus. You can entrust yourself to him. Of course, the rich fool didn't do that. Well, all this, once again, brings us to that great principle in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's the principle. How do we apply these things? Very simply, what can I say? Get life. Get life. If what Jesus says is true, he's saying this very night your soul will be required of you. We know in principle that is true for every last one of us. Because soon enough, whether that time 
is indeed tonight, or whether it's a few years off, it's, it's the same with regard to our thinking. And if that's true, what is going to rescue your soul? What is going to lead you to eternal life? If indeed your soul is going to be required of you, you have got to put your faith in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. He, he begins all this as I, he says, look, beware of this. And then he goes on to say something, beware of that. There's a worldly thinking that is going to kill you. In particular, this covetousness, this, this element of seeking after material things is going to kill you. But obviously, he's presenting himself as the alternative. He is saying, I am here. I have, I, as he says otherwise, I have come to bring you life and to give life more abundantly. Those who are seeking the abundant life, those who are seeking a permanent life, those who are seeking, indeed, all these things, they can be had. They just can't be had in this world. Because even those who seek the most ardently for things, for material pleasures in this world, it seems to recede from them. It's like the tide coming out as they they seek these things, but it recedes away from them the closer it gets. And then you find out it's all a trick, isn't it, of Satan to keep you distracted from spiritual things until the moment of your death. And then you find out the reality of the deception. Well, Jesus loves you too much, you see. That's the wonderful thing. He is a loving Savior, and he speaks word of truth. You may not like it. The big white label on the package, but it's there for your good. And he's saying there is life to be had. In fact, there are pleasures to be had in eternity. There is security to be had, and he offers it in himself. Put your faith in Christ. And indeed, all those things and more, all the things that this world could never, never grant you, are to be held and had in Christ. Well, second, the obvious thing for Christians is that we should turn away from covetousness. For all of us, we should turn away from covetousness. And I want us to see it's a perpetual problem. Matthew Henry says that covetousness is a sin which we have need constantly to watch against and therefore frequently to be warned against. This isn't the last time we're going to hear this warning because it is something we need to hear all the time. Yeah, there are, I think there are a few misconceptions about covetousness. Let me, let me speak on a couple of those. One of them is that the only wealthy or ostentatiously wealthy people have to worry about. It actually has very little to do with what you have or don't have, how it shows or doesn't show. It's not about that. I remember this friend of mine at a church in America. I knew he had an engineering degree from a prestigious university and a job to match that. And yet he lived this very, very simple life. He lived in, in essence, a, a caravan. He had an old car and old clothes I just assumed that he was a great example of someone who is not worldly, didn't struggle with worldliness like I did, and was hugely generous to the church, perhaps. And when I I mentioned something like that to him, he said, well, Bill, some people just like to see the zeros grow in their bank account. And I understood that that covetousness takes many, many different forms, and sometimes it's less obvious than others. In his case, his, this form of covetousness was, was not very obvious to other people, yet it was no more acceptable to God, and he knew it. And I want us to understand that people of every circumstance and every stage of life will be tempted to covet. Okay, so that's one misconception. 
Another one is that covetousness is only about money and material things. Now, that is, that is mainly the case, I guess, but certainly not only. How do we know that? Because what does the commandment say? You know it's a commandment, right? Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That is the first thing that's mentioned. He gets on to material things after that, but the very first thing that is mentioned is your neighbor's wife. And so we know that it includes much more than those sorts of things. And particularly, it includes life situation. Covetousness absolutely includes the, for instance, being married versus being unmarried. Having children versus not having children. Being, if you're old, coveting those who are young. All the rest of those things. If you're in bad health, coveting those who are in good health. All those things can be elements of covetousness. Well, a third misconception is that it may be a sin, but it's not very bad. And if you think that, you know what you're thinking like? A Roman Catholic. Where you have uh, mortal sins, serious sins, and we're definitely not going to do those. And then we have venial sins, which are trivial. You can do them and just make sure you, you, you wash yourself with some holy water or something like that. And it's no big deal to God, and it's no big deal to us. Well, it, may, it might not be a big deal to us, but Jesus says it's a big deal to him. And we need to be very clear that covetousness is no trivial thing. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For this you know that no fornicator, that's probably one of those mortal sins, right? No unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's no trivial matter. And the fourth misconception is that if we've dealt with it at one point in our life, in one area of our life, that we're done with it. Don't I wish that were true? It's not true. Unfortunately, you can deal with it, perhaps in one particular area, uh, three months ago, and it's popped up in some other way, in some other area of your life now. It is a perpetual concern and problem for the people of God. Beware of covetousness. Turn away from it. Because it's going to kill you. Thirdly, of course, we've got to be content. Let me just read to you the larger catechism on this commandment. 148. What are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate. And that's everything, by the way. All of our situation in life. Envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. On the other hand, what are the duties? What are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all of our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Contentment. That's, that's the antidote. That's on the other side of covetousness is contentment with the good things that God, who is your provider, is your heavenly father, has given to you. Be content. And fourth and finally, I would say to give. You know, again, uh, I know for certain I'm not speaking to, to everyone here. There are those who are giving to their, their maximum capacity and it would not be right for them to give anymore. But there are some of us who probably should give. We have the capacity given by God to give more, and maybe we should. And I guess I would speak to us as shrewd investors. Did you know that there's no warning against coveting rewards in heaven? 
In fact, quite to the opposite of that, Jesus tells us to do that. He says he wants us to have our treasures in heaven. He says There's your, your heart is going to be there. I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to be preoccupied with what your situation is going to be in heaven. And he says there are, in fact, rewards for those who give now in this world. Sometimes he even counsels people to say to, in essence, to take the things that you have which you cannot keep, the things which you're not taking with you. As we're reminded by a recent funeral, there was not much that goes into a coffin. It says you can't take that with you, but you can actually use it for good. And you will have rewards in heaven. And his advice to the shrewd investors among us is do that. Do that. Be a true, wise man. Not like, not, not like that rich fool. But rather to have your treasures and investment in heaven. And I, I would just say, very briefly, I think we live in a, a moment of opportunity in this nation. I think that we have unending opportunities to do such things. There are many churches that are waiting to be planted because of resources. There are many other good works. We, we speak of our little seminary. We, we think of other aspects of building up the infrastructure of the kingdom of God in this nation that has fallen into such ruin. And all those things could be done through the people of God. And we know that the Lord can do such things. It is, is in his hands to do it, but he uses his people through it. And so we should give. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no way to do justice to the power of your own words in these things. What more could be said than what the Lord Jesus himself said? Beware of covetousness. These words resounding in our ears. Now, fool, this very night your soul shall be required of you. Lord, what shall we do to these things except to beg you that you might make them to sink down deep into our hearts? And that truly, Lord, you would work upon those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Those who still are seeking the things of this world to satisfy them, to be their, their, their help, to be their source of joy and comfort. Lord, we pray that you'd help them to see the folly of their ways and turn to one who is there before them, who's come in his word and spirit and offering these things that they would be wise and embrace these things and maximize them and entrust themselves to Christ. And Lord, how we pray for ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us indeed to turn away from something that you have warned us so very clearly against, something we know that we all struggle with in various areas. We ask, Lord, for supernatural help to turn away from them. And how we pray, Lord, that you'd grant us true wisdom, the wisdom from heaven that seeks earnestly after the things of the Lord, seeks earnestly after spiritual things, and, and sows to the spirit rather than to the flesh. Indeed, Lord, that we would make wise investments with the material things that you've given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.